We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener, to episode 147 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. We are continuing our discussion from a week ago. So something dramatic happened in the last seven days, and we don't, we don't talk about it. It's because it's pre-recorded. So there you go. It will be missing from the episode. That's right. So, so you'll have to catch that up on the week when I'm not here. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Scott, you're away next I'm, week. I'm away in Malaysia. Yes. Right. I'm leaving on the 18th of May. Okay. Behave yourself in Malaysia. I will. It yeah. tough to get out of if yeah. they find out what, <laughs> what you get up to. <laughs> yeah, too true. Mm-hmm. All right. So, dear listener, continuing on from our discussion last week. ISIS recruiter's wife found guilty of refusing to stand for the judge. We've talked about this one before, where she uh, was involved in court proceedings, refused to stand, and she's been found guilty of some form of uh, engaging in disrespectful behaviour in court. An offence that was introduced in New South Wales in 2016. Anybody unhappy with that decision? No, I think that she should be deported. Right. (laughs) I was present. She's not an Australian citizen. <laughs> exactly. Right. I had reason to attend a magistrate's court a few years ago uh, with my son, and mm. I recall the magistrate telling a young man who showed up in a singlet or a tank top of some sort that if he came to his court dressed that way again, he would find him in contempt. Mm. Good. I mean, the, the, Are you happy I with think that? there is some sort of standard that should be and can be expected in terms of behaviour and decorum in a, in, a, in a legal court. Do you agree? You need it because we're basically um, have to, we have to provide some symbols and some ceremony and tradition to give some weight to what's going on so that people will accept the decisions. Mm. So, for example, the person making the decision, the magistrate, should be in some form of robes or, you know, it's, it's not a bad idea because it, it, it puts them up on a bit of a pedestal as something different yeah. and that you kind of need that because you've got people having to accept the decision of a person in authority. So you want them to have all the trappings of authority to help yes. get that. It's a bit like this footballer who was recently suspended for one match for pushing away the hand of, an, of a match umpire. Right. You know, there has to be a, a mm. boundary that mm. leaves the umpire completely immune to any kind of assault on his person or his authority or her authority. Mm. And yeah, I think in a in a in a court of law there has to be that that air of authority that is respected. Do you mm. agree? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with you. And I think that um I personally think she's shown absolute contempt for the whole justice system because she refused to stand, even when she was sentenced, refused to stand. She sat there with her arms crossed. You know, you just look at the pictures of the um, accused that's on the ABC website. She's covered from head to tail, head to toe. I think that she's just trying to take the mickey, that's all. So, like I said, I think she should be deported. Uh, to where, though? <laughs> oh, I don't care. <laughs> Antarctica? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know about... You're assuming... I'd be pretty confident she's an Australian citizen or permanent resident. Well, she would, she would be an Australian citizen for sure. Mm. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, I came across an article where uh, in Belgium there were sort of whisperings of problems over there with basically Islamic political parties starting to get some traction because the population is such in Belgium that they can win seats in various electorates now. So Mm. they've reached a tipping point in Belgium and the article is titled, you know, first Islamic state in Europe, question mark. And 
Oh, I know. We discussed this with Cam, and he felt that. Uh, what are you worried about? Immigration's fine. It's everyone will just mix, and it'll all be good. And when queried as to whether, well, actually, you Scott thought eventually things will work their way through the system, and it will. It'll take it'll take a lot longer, but yeah. it will it will happen. But it caused me to look at some statistics. So, a quick Wikipedia search of. Muslim populations in some European cities and London, 8.3%, Manchester, 15%. In France, Marseille, 20%. Depending on your statistics, maybe 25%. Paris, 10%. There's some high numbers there. Absolutely there are. Yeah. And, you know, you can even just see it from this article. Since 2001, Mohammed is the most common name given to boys born in Brussels. Yeah. Now, that's a... Um, yeah. I don't want to say it's a worry, but it surely must be a concern for... It's a sign of change. Exactly. For, sure. mm. for, for Belgium. Of demographic Belgian people. change, yeah. yes. And, you know, the... the the article goes into how long it's going to be before this, the Islam party starts winning seats. Um, Pew Research has done a study and they've looked at European countries and they've extrapolated the figures out to 2050 as to the, the likely mix of or likely percentage of Muslims in various European countries. And they did it on three scenarios. One, well, the first one is if there is zero migration from now on, another one where there is medium migration and another one of high migration and looking forward to 2050. So on the zero migration front, just based on the current population and the current birth rates, by 2050, Germany 8.7%, UK 9.7%, France 12.7% and Sweden 11 So Italy... 8.3. So again, some pretty high numbers. Mind you, some countries very low, like Portugal, 0.5, for whatever reason. Don't know what's going on there. And if you go to just a medium level of immigration, then Sweden will bounce up to 20% by 2050. Really? Mm. Mm. France, 17%. So that's a lot. Your country is significantly different. And if there's high migration, uh, Germany will reach 19%, France 18%, Sweden 30%. <laughs> wow. The country will be very different. Mm. So, right, time to thank some patrons. And we got a lovely message from Tony, one of our patrons, who was contributing a dollar an episode and he sent a lovely message about our last episode saying what a great episode it was. He really enjoyed the discussion and he's bumped up and he's giving us even more. So good on you, Tony. That was a really lovely message and we appreciated that. Thank you very much, Tony. Of course, thanks to our other patrons, Ayame, Jimmy Spud, Jimmy, Craig, Anonymous, a new patron, Kane. Welcome aboard, Kane. James, Caitlin, Steve, Brett, Sean. Happy birthday, Sean, for last week. Forgot to send you a message. Sorry, mate, but happy <laughs> birthday. Alex, Alison, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John, Craig, Janelle, and the other Craig, yes, no, the other Ken. We are getting your PayPal donations. Thanks, Ken. And I slipped around and saw my other mate, Ken, and 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 he you extracted some cash from him. I did yes <laughs> <laughs> you didn't so, take a couple of big mates with you so no, no it was yeah so that's all good thanks guys look we haven't had a lot of new patrons like the cane was the first one in a long time so we'd gone ignoring cane's uh, sort of contribution i think we'd gone sort of a couple of months without any new patrons does everybody remember this the chicken Scenario, guys, do you remember how it works? Like, if you're wanting to breed chickens that lay a lot of eggs, you might have thought, well, what I'll do is I will select the chickens that are laying lots of eggs, I'll pull them out, and I'll breed them with other chickens that are laying lots of eggs, and then I'll have I'll have designed a chicken that lays lots of eggs. But the problem is 
what you're potentially doing is you're picking out the bully of every group who is pecking the other hens, stealing their food and, and intimidating them and just dominating the whole group. So you're putting a whole lot of psychopathic chickens <laughs> together and you're breeding from them. And you end up, if you do do that, you end up after half a dozen generations with just a hen house full of psychopaths. Mm-hmm. So, whereas the other option is you... You have you work on groups, so you have a group of ten chickens and another group of ten chickens and another group. And which group is providing the most number of eggs? Okay, I'll breed from that group. It's a sort of a cooperative sort of thing, dear listener. If you've been listening to this podcast and you're not and you're not a patron, you know there's just a small outside chance you might be you might be in the sort of psycho chicken category. I can't seem to face up to the facts I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax This Colonel Sanders job is getting me down A crazy chicken chasing me all over town Psycho chicken Don't make me play it again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've done the voicemail from a listener. Um, okay. Um, you know, once again, we've mentioned earlier the neoliberals are just in charge of everything, and you know they were calling for these tax cuts for corporations, claiming how it was going to bring about more employment and higher wages and that the benefits would be passed on to the little guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you know that NAB, well, here's, NAB is going to sack 6,000 employees. Mm. Have you heard this? Mm. Have you heard that, 12 men? So, oh, so they're going to sack, yes, I did. They're going to sack 6,000 employees. Like, Over the next three years. This yeah. corporate tax break was going to give $9 billion or $11 billion mm. to the banks. Mm-hmm. To create more jobs, ostensibly. And they have said outright, we're about to, one bank is about to sack 6,000 people. And here's the mentality of them. I'll just play, uh, I'll play a little bit of this for you. It's a grim day for staff at the National Australia Bank where 6,000 positions will be axed over the next three years. NAB's announcement of the job cuts comes as the banking world makes what they're calling painful changes in the face of digital technology and changing customer demands. News of the sackings also came as the bank announced a big rise in its after-tax profit to $5.3 billion. Well, when I think about a longer-term plan and the challenges in the environment, I think all big businesses, particularly incumbent businesses, you know, the reshaping of the workforce is going to be significant. And I think it's important we face into that and we have a clear plan and we talk with our people about it. We're investing here to grow and drive productivity. So it's a very good investment story. It's a long-term story. But there's no doubt that our industry is going to have to significantly reshape, reshape our workforce, and that's what we're facing into. Well, no surprise. Technology means they don't need as many workers, yes. so they're just going to sack them. Exactly, and that, that's why it's ridiculous that the government is maintaining this line that's going to lead to more employment. It's not going to lead to more employment. A business that doesn't need as many people will remove the numbers of people. Do they think, do they honestly believe that Coles and Woolworths have put in those self-checkout things because it's great for workers? Mm. No. <laughs> they put them in there because they're cheaper. Yeah. You know, the, the argument, they used to try and run the argument, oh, those people will now stay in the business but they'll move on to more exciting and more interesting work. Well, they're uh, not, so, they haven't got that argument yeah, anymore. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're just gone. They'll the re- retire the older, higher-paid workers and they'll replace them with young people who can operate a com- computer console yep. and follow the instructions on the screen yeah, at base rates of pay. And a fraction of, of the number of people as well. They just yes, won't need as many. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know... I, I don't blame the guy, the CEO, because that's his job. Exactly. Like he's paid to get the bottom line dollar that the shareholders want. And mm. there's no incentive for him to do 
anything other than get rid of as many employees as he possibly can because they're, they're the biggest cost the enterprise will have. Yeah. And no, I think you've hit the nail right on the head. I don't have a problem, too, that they're shedding 6,000 staff. Mm. I know it sounds harsh and callous and all that sort of thing, and you're looking at me strange there, Paul, but it is, <laughs> it is up to the corporation to provide the best bottom line for the shareholders, and that's what they've done. And that is what they're going to do. And But it, what it is very hypocritical of them to do is for them to fund the BCA in their campaign arguing for income tax cuts for their corporation. It is extremely hypocritical for them to do that. Well, it's not hypocritical. It's, it's right in line with, with their... Well, their self-interest. Yeah, it's hypocritical self-interest. If, if they claim that those tax cuts are going to fund more jobs and, uh, you know... That's what the government, but, the line the government's pushing. Yeah, that would be the That's the line, line the government is pushing. Yeah. But it's being, it's being, with stories like that coming out, it's being shown time and time again that it's a, it's a fabrication. It's a, it's a lie. We, we need to change the system somehow, though, because there's no ethics for a company. It's just the money. So there's no incentive for them to employ more people, if possible, or look after the environment if possible or perform any sort of socially responsible role. It's just about the money. And we give corporations a free ride of of zero ethics because, oh, well, that's just the company, you know. And then the people and the CEOs and everybody else who can just drop their ethics at the door as well and provided it's for the good of the company, then it's, then it's all okay and the company has no it's just a company we we we've sort of fallen into the trap of whatever's good for business is ultimately good for australia and it's just not true no it's not true i mean it may be true in some cases but it's not necessarily true mm-hmm. and we've seen this all come out in the banking royal commission haven't we mm. where companies basically treated their customers like an extraction industry. Yep. I, I think we, we need to put some sort of laws in place to force a behaviour that we'd like to see. So, for example, CEO pay is just outrageous. Mm, like, it there's is. no well. way these guys should be getting the money that they're getting. So one thing should be, okay, uh, a bonus... We should be banning short bonuses that are based on short-term performance. So we should just make it illegal and that a CEO can't collect until people look back in 10 years after he's left to see, well, did he just rip out the guts out of the, out of the company and on the books cook up short-term profits that ultimately crippled the, com- the company down the track? So that's one thing. But... It should be there should be some multiple of the employee's pay, the average employee's pay, and and tax on companies should have some formula built in for how many people do you actually employ. Like if you're a if you're a, a tech company that somehow survives on just a handful of people as opposed to a company that employs thousands, it should probably be a different it should be Incentive in place based on the number of employees. If, if that's what we're saying we want our... We're giving all these breaks to corporations because we're wanting employment for people, then why don't we just devise a formula that rewards companies based on employment? Uh, I couldn't agree with you on that. Um, I just got to formulate exactly why. It's... Uh I understand where you're heading, but I can't agree with you on that. Um, why not? We've said... Oh, no, give, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to formulate it, exactly I'll, I'll why. I'll keep talking and you think in your head, but I'll just repeat it again because I'm sort of going off the top of my head. But we, we, we jump, we, we provide all of these incentives for business and we do all these things because we say it'll be great because that'll be good for business. Business will employ people and that's what we need you know, for a vibrant economy. And we never actually say to these businesses, well, if you employ people and we can count them 
here is a concrete benefit. And if you put people off and you don't have as many people, and here's a concrete disadvantage for you. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I do think it's, um, it is a little bit simplistic to look at the numbers of people that corporations employ and then, and then determine what the tax rate should be based on their numbers of employees. Now, for example, Facebook is a huge corporation which has got two or three dozen staff, is my understanding. Mm. It's got bugger all people, but... You look at the, and that's what it's that's what it's supposed to be. It's a tech company. It's yeah. supposed to be light on people. Yeah, you know, and that I don't have a problem with. Well, well, I, 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 true. Keep going. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that because it's a it's a tech company, and that it should be light on people because it's it's trying to go into AI and all that sort of thing too. I do take your point, though, about the environment. I think we do have to put in some type of social but, but, requirement. On, before you get onto the environment then, just mm. back to Facebook. Okay. So two companies. One, a tech company, makes a billion dollars, hires a thousand people, and another, some sort of, um, I don't know, um, McDonald's or something, assuming they're not franchised but they're corporate-owned or, you know, something, something like that, which makes a billion dollars but, but hires 100,000 people. Shouldn't we provide a reward for the company that, that has employed people? No, because those profits are paid out as dividends and those dividends are then taxed in the hands of the, pro- of the shareholders. Yeah. So those profits get taxed. So, so, so shouldn't we tax the company that's not actually providing a social benefit? No, I don't think so. I think the corporation should be left completely unmolested to make its money the way it feels, provided there are no environmental damages or anything like that. But this is my point. Like, But you'll agree, though, that don't we say all the time, let's do these things so that businesses employ people? Mm. And yeah, but that's that's where we've got to get a that's where we've got to get a more honest conversation coming from but, our political but, leaders, and they, they've got to stop this nonsense of saying if we do this for business, it will create more jobs. We've got to be honest about this, and we've got to say that a business that doesn't need to employ people won't employ people. So it's as simple as that. I've stumped him. You, no, 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 no. Well, well, you, well, you just said you disagree, but you don't say, like I'm saying we should be enforcing some sort of social responsibility yeah, on I agree. companies. And I, you're saying... I agree we no, should have some if, sort of social responsibility on them. If it's a tech company, they don't need to be socially responsible no, in terms of employing people because yeah, that's just the nature you're, of them. You're just saying that social responsibility comes down to the numbers of people that you employ. I don't think that's the case. I think you've got other things. Like, for example, Cambridge Analytica. I think Facebook should be... Blowtorch should be applied to their feet for that, mm. for what they did. However, it's not going to happen. I mean, what's his name? Zuckerberg went before the Congress and said, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea grande culpa. You know, it was crazy. Mm. Um, but I do think that they should have had the blowtorch applied to their feet for that. Don't disagree with you there. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about with social responsibility. They were socially irresponsible by allowing Cambridge Analytica to do what they did, but they did it, and they did it because they weren't employing that number of people through it. So I don't have a problem with that. See, what we've got is a case where big, powerful companies are just getting bigger and more powerful, and with increases in technology, they're needing less and less people. Mm. So we're reaching a really dangerous point where money is just being funneled to fewer and fewer people and the middle class is disappearing. And if it keeps going, we'll have a, so many people who won't be able to find any work, Scott. I agree. And that's why we've got so to look at universal basic income first. Right. So yeah. rather than rather than um, okay, I'm with you there. If yeah. if okay, but couldn't we fund a universal basic income out of companies that make lots of money without employing people? So we're saying to companies that do employ people, good on you. You've saved us from having to pay universal basic income. 
And to other companies who've made their dollars on a handful of people, we say, guess what? You're actually causing our problem with what you're doing and you need to contribute more. You're, you're like a polluter who has just dipped plastic into the ocean or oil or whatever. You've caused our society a problem because you've stripped away a whole bunch of employment. So now we're in the situation of having to provide a universal basic income. So can't we do reward and incentive via the tax system on corporations? On corporations, but I do think that the whole point of a corporation is that you should pay the same rate of tax, regardless of how you make your income or how many people you employ to make that income. And the universal basic income would then be funded via corporate tax, and it would be also funded via tax on individuals. But you're saying it should be equal tax on all companies. Exactly. Just because it should be. It should be, that's right. But that's not an answer. Because I'm saying it shouldn't be. Payroll tax. I'm saying it it shouldn't be because they've caused the problem of, of taking away employment opportunities and we should be rewarding companies who who help our system. And you're just going to say, oh, no, it should be equal. But you haven't... Payroll tax. Payroll tax only applies to companies over a certain number of staff. Is that right? No, it applies applies to uh, companies that have a payroll in excess of... And they pay tax or thereabouts, yeah. An extra tax. They do. What about a reverse payroll tax where by employing people, they get a tax benefit rather than a tax burden? Sure, anything like that. Anything that says, well done for employing people. And the government keeps telling us. Because that's just less universal basic income. Everyone needs the dignity of work. And and I I tend to agree. I think the whole point about the universal basic income is it's paid to everyone. That's why they call it universal. It is paid to everyone, regardless of what your own personal circumstances are. Well, even if you're working. Exactly. That's what it is. It's paid to everyone. Yeah, the beauty of a universal basic oh, oh, income... Hang on, I thought it was you didn't have to go for job interviews and you didn't have to no, um, it's, it's paid apply to... for jobs, but if you were working, you didn't get it. No, it's paid to everyone. So what you do... So whatever you earn from your paid employment is, is a bonus. Is a bonus, right. over and above the universal basic income. Right. Now, the beauty of the UBI is that you overnight do away with the CES... Right. <laughs> well, the, the DSS, those sorts of departments, they just disappear. So all those jobs are gone. They're all gone. <laughs> more jobs gone, yeah. They join. they join the ranks of those people getting the universal basic income. Yeah. Or they do more productive work. Well, yeah. <laughs> you sure it works that way? Absolutely, yeah. That's the way it works. That's the, the basic idea. The basic that. idea is that everyone gets the same amount of money right. from the government. Right. And then what you do is Gina Reinhart's income tax goes up by the amount she receives from the universal basic income. Yeah. Blokes like us, our income would go up by the same amount we'd receive from the universal basic income. Mm-hmm. It just comes down to those people that are getting the universal basic income never pay any income tax. Mm-hmm. Those of us that work and that sort of stuff, we end up paying, the, we end up paying for right. those that aren't working. Right. And the idea is that <laughs> the DSS and that sort of stuff ceases to exist because everyone's getting the same amount of money and no one cares how you received but it. It can't, it can't be an, an amount that would provide a lavish lifestyle, obviously. No, that's why they call it a basic income. People not have any incentive to work. It would be at a level where the people spend everything they get. Mm. Well, it's, so, you know, essentially. You'd have it set that you could afford to rent and you'd, you'd set it up so that people could just live on it. Yeah. And... You know, the whole point is that, you know, the studies that have been done on it are suggesting that people still work because we're creatures of luxury. We like mm. little luxuries. You know, we like the occasional overseas holiday. I, you know, I, I tend to agree that you've got to... That's why I've said that, you know, we should tax corporations on their gross income, not their net income, you know, because I think we've got to get, we've got to get the money out of them. But I do not believe that it should be based on the numbers of people that they employ. Capitalism is failing us, 12th man. I noticed you didn't direct that to me. Because <laughs> you already agree with me? Sorry? You, you, already, you, you agree with the statement? or uh, You don't think capitalism is failing? No, I think capitalism is succeeding. It's just that it's 
succeeding better for some sectors of the community exactly. than for others. And I do think that we have to we, look we, at our. We, I do think we have to look at regulation, which, and that's is, the which is the nature of capitalism. Yeah, I, I think it's it's, um, it's misleading it's, to say capitalism it, is failing. It isn't failing. It's it's working exceedingly well. It's just the benefits are unevenly distributed. But doesn't that constitute a failure? No, it doesn't. No. You, you don't failure look at America would be, and... Fail, failure would be mass starv- starvation and, um, you know, people sleeping in parks everywhere. You, you don't look at America today and think it's showing all the signs of the failure of capitalism? Because in America uh, they've allowed those with money and influence to totally take control of the political system. But that's what will happen with capitalism. But that's not necessarily capitalism. People in charge of capital and means of production get power and control, which they can just use and get more traction and more power and control, Hmm. and jobs disappear from the middle class and. And you just get a concentration of wealth at yeah. the top. I mean, that's the progress of a capitalist system. Well, you could also see it as a failure of um, of the social institutions to moderate the the excessive influence of those with money. But they'll they'll never do it because the what, money is power, and it's power and influence. And the people with it are using that power and influence to get the politicians they want and the laws they want, which will increase their their position. And they will just get more and more. And the general population reaches a point where it's where it is in fact powerless to stop them. Yeah, which is and why we've probably reached to, that point. You have to remedy the situation before it reaches that stage by but, putting into but, place. But that is the sort of end game of capitalism. Like, it's not unusual. It's not... It, you don't look at that scenario and go, oh, gee, never thought capitalism would, would, would lead to that. I mean, it's the natural result of capitalism, don't you think? I had no idea you were a closet Marxist. Well, this is what, I'm, 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 I'm running this argument because it's the anniversary of Marx's it birthday. Yes. It was the 5th of May, 1818. Really? Yeah. 200 years. Mm. So that's a yeah, long time, isn't about it? His, he had quite an interesting life, didn't a, he? A lot of the concepts and thoughts are really relevant yeah. to today's world, Indeed. written almost 200 years ago. Really. And he hung out in Paris with some really interesting guys too, like the anarchists and, you know, Proudhon and uh, Bukharin and people like that. Right. Until he had to flee Paris and go to London where he, he could work in safety and peace. Right. But he was an interesting guy. That You know, it, there's a, a new biography on Marx just been published and mm. the biographer paints a picture of a very extremely intelligent, compassionate, thoughtful person yep. whose, whose ideas and whose philosophy has been grossly distorted by uh, certain implementations of his theories. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that Marxist Bolshevism was a distortion of what Marx was actually on about. Yeah, but that was probably more Leninism than Marxism is yeah. what people are claiming. Now, I'm, I'm not um, making a case either way, but, um, yeah. Our old friend, Yanis Faroufakis who was the Greek finance minister and wrote the book Adults in the Room, uh, he has written the foreword, I think, to a sort of a reprinting of the Communist Manifesto. So I've got a link here to the article by Yanis Varoufakis, and I'm just going to read some bits of it. Here we go. Well, quite a little bit of it. To see beyond the horizon is any manifesto's ambition, but to succeed as Marx and Engels did in accurately describing an era that would arrive a century and a half in the future, as well as to analyse the contradictions and choices we face today, is truly astounding. In the 1840s, capitalism was foundering, local, fragmented and timid. And yet Marx and Engels took one long look at it and foresaw our globalised, financialised, ironclad, all-singing, all-dancing capitalism. This was the creature that came into being after 1991. 
At the very same moment, the establishment was proclaiming the death of Marxism and the end of history. So according to Yanis, they were pretty good in their assessment of, of what was going to happen in the future back in that time. Anyone reading the manifesto today will be surprised to discover a picture of a world much like our own, teetering fearfully on the edge of technological innovation. In the manifesto's time, it was the steam engine that posed the greatest challenge to the rhythms and routines of feudal life. Now it is artificial intelligence and automation that loom as disruptive threats. For Marx and Engels, however, this disruption is to be celebrated. It acts as a catalyst for the final push humanity needs to do away with our remaining prejudices that underpin the great divide between those who own the machines and those who design, operate and work with them. None of this would surprise a reader of the manifesto. Society as a whole, it argues, is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other. As production is mechanised and the profit margin of the machine owners becomes our civilization's driving motive, society splits between non-working shareholders and non-owner wage workers. As for the middle class, it's the dinosaur in the room set for extinction. Don't agree, Twelfth Man? You're looking at me? Yeah, I think, I think the Iron Fist is an agent of the Labour Party trying to foster <laughs> class war. Are you? Putting, putting an idea forward. This is a little bit like, you know what I feel like here? This is a little bit like if you're an American, you say, oh, you know, socialism's not a bad idea. Like, yeah. I'll just run you out of town. Like, yeah. no, we, I... we have a, a genuine problem with capitalism. And you've already... Scott, you're a proponent of mm. universal basic income. Yes, I am. Which is, you know, let's face it, a very socialist Absolutely concept. it is, yes. Yeah? It, it actually makes sense for a capitalist as well because they're going to run out of customers. Exactly. They're going to yeah. run out of people who can buy an iPhone because mm. they'll just be too poor. If you exactly. want to make widgets and sell them, you're going to need a public who can buy them. And mm. giving people money that they'll spend most of it on stuff is perfect for Ooh. a capitalist. So they really should come to the party on that sort of thing. But they won't because they're too greedy. That's the, sort of, that's the sort of idea behind, I think, the manifesto is that, that, that if they were smart, they would grant concessions to keep the working class happy, but they won't. They'll keep driving it harder and harder. And you reach the point that we're in, in, say, America, where people are working for $7.50 an hour and they need two jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's really criminal. It really is wrong that you've, you can't just survive on one job. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous that you've got situations where you've got single mums that are working 80 hours a week just to keep food on the table and a roof over their head. We were talking about ethics earlier. Now, mm. it's, I see the whole problem as an ethical one rather than a case of dismantling capitalism because we all know capitalism has produced innovation and creativity on a scale never before seen on planet Earth. But it's a case of ethics, whereas in the United States in mid-20th century, you know, the big corporations like the automakers, they actually raised wages so that their factory workers would be able to buy their products and it boosted no, no, the economy. they needed labour. The, the industry at the time required labour. So did. they paid... They paid the higher wages because they needed people on the sh on the shop floor. But did they not? They didn't also do it out of the goodness of their heart. Raise wages so that their workers could buy their products. No, you don't think so. No, I think you'll find Henry Ford did that. He Famously. raised wages so that you, people that it, were building the Model T could afford to buy one. It, it, I, the, I mean, there was an anecdote of a car manufacturer showing a robot assembly line to a union official and saying, you know, what do you think of that? And the union official saying, well, who are you going to sell them to? Yeah. But I don't know that Henry Ford raised wages 
so his employees could buy his cars. Oh, I think that was the case, yeah. yeah. In any event, that's the if, legend, he's yeah. the outlier if that's the case because... Well, he raised the wage to $5 a day, which was right. an incredible amount of money to earn at the time. But, but the point about, you know, the, America in the 50s and 60s was that you needed labour for the type of industries that were booming at that time. So it wasn't out of the goodness of their heart. And as soon as they discovered robotics, you know, they're happy to move into it. That's true. Mm, I've got no problem with that. <laughs> yeah. So, again, it's a case of ethics. You know, the, 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 the wealthy shareholders of the big corporations got greedy. They just wanted more and more and more. And we know that from the 1980s onwards, when productivity increases, all the productivity increases basically went into the pockets of the, the wealthiest, yeah. you know, 5 or 10%. Well, I think that's and, why... You know, Trevor's right with the universal basic income because it's going to provide a market for capital. You know, it's going to provide a cashed-up market for people to go and spend in the shops. Yeah. But, you know, when you talk about it's a matter of ethics, the, the problem is that CEOs are told it's just the bottom line. Nothing else counts. That's what you're judged on. That's what you need to worry about. And so they, there is no ethic for them other than the dollar. So... If you're NAB CEO, you will sack 6,000 people because that's the way the system is set up to incentivise you. So we need to reset the system to put in some, uh, some, incentives. some incentives to say, actually, you might want to choose a different path. You often talk about the social contract, Trevor, hmm. and again, it comes back to ethics, doesn't it? And perhaps it's a failure of our education system. You know, in civics classes have been, you know, chucked out years ago, more or less, haven't they? And our children are taught to, to get a job and to work and make money and consume. They're not taught about the social contract or, or, what it is, or what it means to live in a community anymore. Hmm. I'll just play this a little bit. It's, um, I've played it once before, but it's a bit from Giannis Ferrifakis, and I quite like it for those who haven't heard it before. So bear with me. Well, the technological revolution that uh, is taking place uh, is uh, threatening us with uh, a unique phenomenon. So far, every time we had technological innovations, uh, they destroyed many jobs, but they created more jobs than they destroyed. This is the Schubertarian process, uh, which uh, overall had net winners, uh, even though there were many losers. Now there is the first uh, juncture since the 18th century when it is highly likely that technological innovation is going to destroy a lot more uh, positions for wage labor than it will create, uh, which uh, I think puts us uh, on a course of a major dilemma. There will be a juncture, and we'll have to choose, and we'll have to choose politically and democratically uh, between a world in which the concentration of ownership over the newfangled means of production is going to lead to a stagnating capitalism with intense inequality and a huge quantity of income for a decreasing, shrinking percentage of the population uh, that leaves behind uh, um, barriers, fences, electrified fences in uh, policed, privately policed communities and the rest uh, in a cesspool of volatility, uncertainty and social misery. Let me put it in science fiction terms. Um, this is a parable that I think is quite instructive and I use it often. Um, there's no doubt we are moving towards a science fiction world that will become non-fiction. But, remember, science fiction has two possibilities. One is a Star Trek society where we are all equals and we all benefit from the technology. We don't have to work. And there's a hole in the wall. You go to it, you, you get anything you want from it. Nobody has exp been exploited. Nobody has worked for it. The machines do it for you. So the machinery, the technology, is humanity's servant. And then we can sit around and explore the universe. We can have philosophical discussions about the meaning of life, which is wonderful, right? The, in the, that is a good scenario. But then there's the matrix, too, where the artifacts that we have created enslave us. And then we become caught up in an illusion of freedom. 
rather than the real thing. Whether we go to a Star, Star Trek or to a Matrix-like outcome as a result of technological innovation is the result of politics. And if it's not democratic, it will be a Matrix-like world. You, we're fine. I mean, we're, we'll be gone. These are all questions. But our, our children and grandchildren. Yeah, my yeah, well, like grandchildren all are going to be the ones that have to face this. Mm. Well, we have we've sort of coasted easy, mm. the, but it's going to be tough down the track if something doesn't change. I thought the point you made about democracy was really highly um, important. Yeah, but our democracy has been hijacked. Yes, but it's not beyond redemption. Trevor, I think we can still save it, but we're going to have to work very hard. Mm. And if we if we don't, then it's a lost cause. We'll go yep. we'll go down the the, the China model, yep. I think, eventually, where it'll just be an authoritarian, Orwellian, you know, dictatorship where all our behaviour and action is constantly monitored and rewarded or punished according to how well we conform with the requirements. Yep. See, I, I would have thought, okay, let's stop lobbyists being able to walk the halls of Parliament and let's stop political donations, just mm. full, full stop. And so let's just stop the ability of powerful interests to have this undue influence in our, with our politicians. But I still worry that the People just don't care. So the ones who will still sign up to become a politician are the nutcases. Who, <laughs> the, you know, the, for example, our religiously motivated friends mm. will just hijack the Liberal Party and put their people in because they've got an agenda that they are passionate about and the, most people aren't. Mm. We're, we're too... Uncaring, which, which is, is blasé. Why, which is why education is so critically and centrally important. We have to educate children who will become adults to become critical thinkers. And not only critical thinkers, but we have to give them a certain amount of base knowledge about the history of humanity and the world and how it's constructed and what, you know, objective reality to, to wean them off this magical thinking that is propagated by religion and, and, and give them the tools, the intellectual tools, to properly assess our politicians and our political system and, I agree with you, get money out of the system, give all political parties or all individual candidates a certain budget to run their election campaign and just get all the donations out of it. But it has to be a, a two-pronged approach, not just focusing on the political mechanisms. You have to also focus on the voting populace and make sure that they have the, the intellectual tools to make rational decisions. They, have, rational to, they have to want to think about it. They have to be... Well, they have to want to think about it. Into it, it enough, agree. and people yeah. aren't. Yeah, but that can be addressed through proper education. I'm know. not so sanguine. I think that... Um, I think you've got a situation that people just don't care. And the, you know, you've got a, you look at the membership of the Liberal Party, the membership of the Labor Party, they have both contracted over the last 30 years. And it's a basis that the parents aren't being replaced by their kids and the kids' generation. You've got the, both sides of politics are being replaced by power-hungry apparatchiks who have worked the system and they go in there and they just... Uh, they know who to deal with, so it and is... And they've got agendas that are not good. No, they're not good at all. Yep. Right-wing Tony introduced us to the poem by Yeats, which, The Second Coming, which mm -hmm. had this great line in it, Twelfth Man. The best, like all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. It's true. <laughs> the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. It's mm. true. That's part of the problem as well. That's part of the problem. How to motivate people to get yeah. up in the streets. I mean, there are enough things, as we discussed early on, mm. there are so many things going on at the moment that are so bad for this current generation and not a peep out of them. Mm. And compassion, complacency is as big a problem 
as people being active and passionate with bad ideas, in a sense, you know, because when the good people are complacent, the bad, passionate people will take the floor. Mm, That's what's happening. Well, there we go, dear listener, on that depressing note, (laughs) we're going to (laughs) finish... But there's always beer, right? There's always beer. No, I'm not. Um, I'm not so. I'm not ready to give up on democracy. I'm not I either. do think that we have to. We do have to get people engaged and to remove the temptation to go down the China route, because China is not a nice country. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. it's it's nice for the the minority who are Communist Party members who have um, comfortable positions in the you know in the whether in business or in the organs of state. But mm. it's not so nice for the ordinary person but, who is a nonconformist. But neither is America. America is not a nice country. I think America is but, still but, better than China in yeah, a lot of respects. Yeah, yeah but look. I'm just sort of making the point mm. that if you are a low-skilled fast food worker, mm. a Walmart worker, an Amazon worker, an Amazon worker, you are you're carrying around a bottle to piss into because your time is being monitored so much that you're scared you're going to be in trouble for having toilet breaks. Mm. That's what's going on in in Amazon warehouses in the United States of America today. It's a worry. Mm. I agree. Which it's not good. So, But which would you choose if you had a choice to go and spend the rest of your life in China or the United States? Which one would you choose? Well, what part of the spectrum am I in? So, Yeah, you, what you, part of the social class are you in? Yeah. You know, if, if I am... A poor African-American in Chicago or a, a, a bad neighbourhood with no education and no prospects where I've got a real good chance of either being shot by the police or ending up in jail, like your, your propensity to end up in jail would just be so high. As a black, a poor black American, or if you're a Uyghur, so I'll put this to you: in would, Beijing, would you be rather pushing a food cart in Beijing, or would you rather be in a US jail? You don't have to be in jail. No, but if if you're dropped into a position, um, okay, here's here's what we've got: we've got a um, a barrel full of balls, and you could be. Plucked, the ball could be plucked out of the barrel, and in the uh, American pile barrel, okay, it's got all of the people in America. So, huge numbers of poor people who are struggling with great difficulty, and you've got a barrel in, in China, which again, huge numbers struggling. Okay, at this present point in time, if you had to take your, your chances, of course you'd pick America. Like, I of, would. Of, of course you would. But there'd be lots of balls in the barrel in America that would be bettered by balls in the Chinese barrel. Like, there's a hell of a lot of, of, of bad options in, in, that, in that country. So, yeah. But look, um, China has its sinister side as well. Yeah, you know? of I course. Mean, of course it does, but I'm just saying. When you said, you know, would you? I'm just saying there's some really bad options in the American system that that I'd hate to be caught you up. Still, in. don't have to get permission to go and live in a different city in America, you know? Yeah. Whereas in China, if you move to another city, your your children don't have a right to go to school to enrol in the local school. Right, but but and if you're a Uyghur from the north but, north but, but if you're northwest. Northwest, mm. and you go to Beijing, try and get a job. You may well be discriminated in the same way as African Americans are discriminated. But, but if you're an uneducated, Afri- you know, poor working class American, your ability to ch- to move to another s- city is extremely limited through, through finance. So you know, that's, that's the other thing. You might have the choice to say, in your mind, I'd like to go there, and if you won the lottery, you could. But lots of people can't move just because of money. 
Yeah. Mm. Look, it's it's a matter of making the system more mm. more equitable and more fair, mm. rather than abandoning it. I think. Mm. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to tweak the system so that the companies, for example, are, f- are rewarded for employing people. <laughs> Scott doesn't like that idea. No, I'm not convinced of it. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that America still has some signs of hope. Like, you know, Bernie Sanders, for example, came within a hair's breadth of winning the Democratic nomination. Mm. Had he have actually won the Democratic nomination, we wouldn't be talking about President Trump. We'd be talking about President Sanders. Possibly. Oh, I think we would be. But not only that, America still has free speech, you know. Mm-hmm. As imperfect as it might be, it still has it. Whereas in China, you're, not, you're just not going to get a public platform mm-hmm. if your ideas conflict too radically with the party line. They're just not going well, to get our, a platform. Yeah, but our podcast not, wouldn't, be, wouldn't but, be able yeah. to be but, but you, you recorded don't get, you in don't China. Get a podcast... Legal in China? Well, my brother downloads it, yeah. So. Okay, but you don't get a, a, a platform in a modern Western democracy either without uh, either, you know, luck or influence or power of some sort. Like, it's not, it, it's not easy to get a platform in our democracy either, is it? I, so, I mean, you can run for the secular party in the Senate and you've got no capacity to, to get your word out. Yes, but you still so, have the capacity to run, whereas in China yes. you can't even run yeah. well, for the Senate or whatever, you know, these, yeah. the People's Congress yeah, or whatever. Yeah, but it's pointless. Call. So, I mean, you said earlier, let's not rip out pages of the Quran because it's pointless. Well, you know, <laughs> arguably it's just pointless to run because without the power behind you, then you're wasting your time. You're not going to have any influence either. Look, if, if, you know, if, if the you know, hypothetical secular party candidate could get a Clive Palmer type, you know, someone with money behind them to sponsor their campaign, it definitely would be possible to get elected. There you go. See, that's what I'm saying. It requires... Yeah, so it's not impossible. It's Whereas not, in China, you wouldn't even be running. Mm. You just would not be a candidate because they would not allow it. Mm. Still, I, I would still choose America. I don't want to. I, look, I don't want to go and move to China either. But I'm just making <laughs> the point, it's not all beer and skittles in America. We all know that it's not all beer and skittles in the US. But I think if you had to choose between the two countries, I think you'd choose America. And well, and you know, a hundred years down the track, that the way things are going, that may not be the choice you'd make. Absolutely, it may not be. However, you know, little fact, mm. Hillary Clinton was toying with the idea of introducing universal basic income in the United States. Was she? She was. Wow. But she was talked out of it by her advisors. Oh. Now, had she have actually run on that platform? Because it's got the S word attached. Well, exactly. Mm, it's, yeah. it's, 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 S. It's, it's the S word attached to it. But had she have actually run on that platform, she may well, have had a, may well have had a very different outcome at the election. All right. We're rambling now. We better stop. <laughs> Dear listener... If you weren't depressed enough, I'm just going to finish off with this one today. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood dim tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. A waste of desert sand, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know the twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Cheryl, where's the girl who helps me with this? I'm trying to leave a message for that fist fellow and that velvet glove person. What, what do you mean she's on lunch? She needs lunch? Goodness me, I have to pay sick leave, I have to pay for annual leave. 
This is why we need corporate tax breaks in Australia. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Viz Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.